politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, forgotten and scorned patriots, to the one and only Conservative Review podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house on Tuesday, June 30th, the last day of the first half of 2020, the year from hell. Man, hopefully the second half of this year will be better. Or hopefully the second half will be the time we fight back. It's now halftime in 2020. And the time has come for us to get possession of the ball. Now, I don't know what that means. Because I could tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean Republicans in power. Many of you saw last night, Indiana Senator Paul Brown was on with Tucker Carlson. And if you haven't seen the way Republican senators act and talk, their priorities, their values, their focus... It was nakedly on display last night. He supports the radical blood libels matter movement. I mean, could you imagine, could you imagine a right wing militia just doing, you know, violence and mob rule and beating up people at intersections and every Republican and and then even Democrats praising that movement as like, an imperative, like you can't live without it. Like that's the new constitution. That's the Republican Party for you. Then we have today, I tweeted out an article, Kevin McCarthy and a bunch of Republicans signing on to this climate change initiative. Again, folks, the Republican Party is like that dead grass in the early spring when you're trying to replant some of that grass that died in the sun in, in the winter. And... One thing's for sure about that dead grass. The only purpose it serves is blocking you from replanting. Everyone asks, how do you start a new party? But part of the problem is because you have a Republican Party. If you didn't have the Republican Party, the answer would be simple. And that's why I need to divorce and detach people from that. And and, and I know it sounds scary. Oh, I'm worried about the Democrats. But I guarantee you, we will not fight back. We will not turn the corner. We will not preserve any modicum of a republic and even part of the country until and unless we burn that down the GOP. They stand for, I mean, this is not like some, you know, bipartisan, moderate movement that has some appeal. This is the most extreme anarchist Marxist movement around, racist movement, anti-Semitic movement. We're going to talk with our special guest about this in a couple minutes. And yet Republicans still can't push back. Still can't push back. Then we got amazing news out yesterday. Tons of news on the virus. Alex Berenson, former New York Times reporter, we had him on the show a couple of weeks ago. He reported from an owner of 12 clinics in Texas who went on the record with him, gave out his name, how all all the patients he's seeing come in are exactly what we said. If they're not there for something else and just to happen to test positive, meaning they came in because of COVID, it's they have what he called a cold in parentheses, a mild one at that. That's the symptoms. Almost like he said indistinguishable from, from allergies, you know, sniffling a little bit. That's what a lot of people are seeing. They test positive because everyone has those tests now. 
And they're scared. And that's fine. But give some context to it. Then, of course, we have the other factor. You know, what's interesting about this is the lack of faith in God. This notion that anytime there's a case, it must be because of human input. And there must be a human mitigation effort. There must be an ability. So that's where this whole mask thing came from. When they realized it was untenable to fully lock everyone down indefinitely, they had to come up with a way. We're, we're going to block it. Like the superstitious feeling. And, and it's, it's just simply not true. We found that with the flu. Every single year, 40 to 60 million people get it. A certain amount of people die. Some years is pretty bad, like in 2018 where more people died from the 2018 flu just two years ago than people in in a lot of different states. Mainly the states that are so-called getting hit now with a very, very mild version. And then you have the children that are one-tenth, one-eighth to one-tenth of the deaths of the annual flu. And we shut down the schools, we shut down the camps in a lot of states. My kids' camp got canceled. But it's funny how for people who believe it's all human beings that are that that spread it or have the ability to mitigate it, somehow they don't look at the two ironclad factors in May-June that led to what we're seeing now, which admittedly, I'm consistent. I don't believe it's earth-shattering what we're seeing now, but they do. So how dare they not recognize the timing of the rioting and the mass gatherings and the border? And guess what? CNN, yesterday, I give them credit, of all outlets, CNN reported, people with coronavirus are crossing the U.S.-Mexico border for medical care. So a simple assertion that Republican Governor Doug Duncey in Arizona and Greg, whatever, Abbott or something that rhymes with it, uh, of Texas, could not hold the line on a message that CNN was willing to put out. Chris Van Gorder says he's seeing a, a telling trend in the hospitals he runs. This is CNN. Coronavirus patients are showing up in ERs after calling 911 from the U.S.-Mexico border. They're literally, they'll literally come to the border and call an ambulance, says Van Gerder, president and CEO of Scripps Health, a hospital system in Southern California. The rise in ambulance traffic from the border, which several officials described to CNN, is a symptom of the pandemic's spread in the region and a sign of the many connections between communities in both countries. Quote, there is just not a wall for viruses at the border, said Josia Heyman director of Center for Inter-American and Border Studies at the University of Texas at El Paso, the wall is an illusion because the two sides are really woven together. An increase in cross-border coronavirus cases, which began getting public attention in May, overwhelmed some California hospitals and spurred the state to create a new patient transfer system to help. A new patient transfer system. It's an unprecedented surge across the border, said says Carmelo Coyle, president and CEO of the California Hospital Association. The past five weeks, more than 500 patients have been transferred to hospitals across the state from California's Imperial County, which has the highest per capita rates of coronavirus cases in the state. Here you go. The main players in the California hospital systems, CNN reporting, 
This is not some right-wing blog. Straight up. Straight up. And again, what's important about this is that if you want to know why there was a resurgence, and then mainly it's mild, but there are more deaths at the border and serious cases, look at this. Call an ambulance. They're coming because they're seriously ill. And I get it. Mexico got what we got much later. But of all the things that human beings can prevent, this is one of them, not importing another country's epidemiological curve. Now, a lot of the article basically says, oh, it's not about immigration or illegal immigration. It's people, you know, live in dual citizens, living on both sides of the border, cross-working, cross-travel, cross-visiting, and they're like, there's nothing we can do to stop this. Now, first of all, Fine, but then at least be transparent about it. At least just stop blaming, you know, the, the, these um, left-wing local officials in these border counties are blaming barbecues or something and social gatherings. No, like, let's be honest where it's coming from. Number two, the other is, I understand if you want to say you have a cross-border culture of commerce and trade. I get that. But guess what? We have an intra-border culture of commerce and trade within the cities and within the states, and they were still shut down with an unprecedented lockdown. I'm not saying we should shut down um, dual citizens from you know being able to travel back and forth as an immigration policy, as a long-term immigration policy. I'm saying if we're going to declare a state of emergency and suspend the Bill of Rights inside of America for American citizens, so then certainly for... Um, dual citizens, LPRs to cross an international border every day and come back and forth and re-spread and reintroduce Mexico's problem, yes, I mean, we're going to shut that down. And to the extent we feel responsible to treat that, we should take the numerous hospital resources we had from the makeshift field hospitals we didn't use and didn't need and deploy them. But don't bring them inside. I mean, here they're talking about 500 patients have been transferred. Not 500 people have been brought over the border. Many more than that. 500 patients were transferred from Imperial County to further in California. Again, here's the big question. How many hospital beds are now being taken up in border states by people who recently arrived from the border? We, we are owed an explanation. If we are going to be lectured to how we need to wear a mask and we're spreading it too much and it's our fault, I want an answer to that question. How many beds are being taken up by people who came over recently from Mexico, whatever their status is, and how many of the serious cases in ICUs? And I, I would say that's even more. I mean, you look at it, Cochise County, right? Cochise County is 36%. Hispanic. Yet if you look at the cases, it's 76%. What's interesting is if you look at CDC data, you're going to notice something very interesting. You're going to notice that Hispanics are responsible for about 18% or or not responsible, account for about 18% of the COVID deaths. Blacks account for about 22%. So there's more Hispanics than blacks, right? In other words, Hispanics are roughly, their share of the deaths is roughly commensurate with their share of the population, whereas blacks is about twice their share. And as we've all always known, that blacks seem to be more vulnerable than certainly whites, but, but uh, Hispanics as well. But then you go to the cases, and what's interesting is, I just saw this today. What's interesting is that 
the number, the percentage of his of cases that are among Hispanics is 34% of the national pie, but only 18% of the deaths. And what that tells me is two things interconnected. And, and broadly, that's good news. That I don't think Hispanics from day one had many more cases and fewer deaths. It doesn't make any sense. Because anyone will tell you, um, I don't think anyone disagrees, that they are more vulnerable to die and get a serious case than at least whites are, if not blacks, but whites. But what that tells you is there was an increase in cases in May and June, and the Mexican border and the migrant workers likely had something to do with that. Now, hopefully the good news is that most of that is the second wave, if you want to call it that, that's much milder. And that would explain the huge bifurcation between Hispanic cases and Hispanic deaths. Because if most of the Hispanic cases came in later, and and that was during the mild wave, that would answer why they have so many more cases, but fewer deaths relative to their share of cases. That's It's a working theory. So I'm hoping that the numbers of serious cases and deaths that came over the border are relatively confined to hospitals and that they didn't spread. I pray that's the case. And that the remainder from like the migrant workers that just kind of travel around were the more milder cases we will see as this progresses. But why why don't any Republicans talk about this? Why don't they pin the tail, have a two for one? Everyone's terrified of the virus, so we have corona fascism. And then we have uh, the sacred... Protests and rioting. You know a great way to smash it? You guys spread COVID. There's unbelievable evidence. I have an article out today on this. Unbelievable evidence. In Minnesota, people in their 20s accounted, very few deaths, but accounted for um, 20% of cases. Do you know that among the new cases since June 25th, They've accounted for close to 60%. That's insane. Meaning even if epidemiologically speaking, the virus is kind of like on a new mode and attacks younger people, you would see like maybe 60% of new cases would be from, I don't know, 20 to 50, 20 to 45. But this is 20 to 29. Folks, those are your Antifa BLM rioters. I mean, it's obvious. So that's where we are with that. So, folks, I mentioned before that we saw a lot of Republicans in recent days giving into this narrative that somehow blood libels matter is a legitimate entity, is something to be countenanced, is something to even strive for supporting rather than really drawing a line in the sand, uh, providing voters with a bold contrast, speaking the truth about who they are. So I figured we'd delve into what is BLM and where did it come from? It, it, it truly is phenomenal when you watch the political movement. I mean, imagine a right-wing militia that would just start shooting up the place. I mean, or, or, or a tea party that would gain prominence to the point where every corporation, every anyone who is involved in public life has to pledge allegiance to it. Otherwise, they're, they're, they're a dead man walking politically or economically. Um, man, how do you get that much power? I I noticed yesterday 
a lot of people were talking about that family in St. Louis that had their private neighborhood attacked. They went out to defend their property with firearms and they were doxxed and humiliated and really, you know, they're they're in a world of hurt now. What I found fascinating was when you read the statement of their lawyer, it's almost like, dude, not everyone was even black there. Some of them were white. And and let me tell you, we support BLM. I mean, we yes, yes. It's like almost like to evacuate yourself from a situation and to validate self-defense. You have to believe in that. How did we get to that point? Well, with us today is Ami Horowitz, no relation to me, but does terrific work. He's a filmmaker as well as an investigative journalist. Um, you got to check out his YouTube page. Also, uh, you could follow him on Twitter at Ami Horowitz. That's A-M-I-H-O-R-O-W-I-T-Z, uh, spelled just like my last name, where he really puts out videos on the ground. He interviews these people. Um, he was at this autonomous zone in Seattle so I wanted to get a sense of what these people are about, what is driving them, how they've become so powerful. Ami, thanks so much for joining us here on the CR Podcast. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, I'm glad you're safe. Uh, you know, I would never have the guts to do what you've been doing. But let's start off just with generally what I just said. I don't understand how does a movement this radical become so mainstream and so moneyed and so well connected. Walk us through how you have a Floyd situation, which which presumably no one could have ever planned. And within hours, these guys are all mobilized and ready. How does that happen? Well, uh, if we recall Black Lives Matter, which, by the way, is an absolute triumph of marketing, right? It's absolutely brilliant marketing and, and a, a brilliant way to package in name an organization, right? Black Lives Matter. How could you disagree with Black Lives Matter? If you, even if you criticize it, you are then labeled, it's, it's built into the name, you're then able to be labeled as a racist because you don't care about black lives. Look, remember, Black Lives Matter did not start over the last few months. Black Lives Matter started years ago. Um, it really, it, it, it kind of really, be, it rose to prominence during the riots in Ferguson, uh, which I was also, that was actually one of the, probably the, the video that popped the most for me back then was that video I did at Ferguson where I really captured not just the rage of the people, but the violence that, that, that these people were kind of, again, this, this notion that these protests are all peaceful and that are wonderful, it just isn't true, right? And there's an incredible amount of rage and violence within these protesters. I found out firsthand just the other day, yesterday. But to get back to the idea of Black, so Black Lives Matter began then. It was a radical movement then. It was begun by three black women who are incredibly, incredibly radical. They are self-described neo-Marxists. That's really where the, the basis of the organization in economics is neo-Marxism. And of course, people don't want to talk about that. But um, yeah, so they were able, these radicals were able astonishingly to mainstream their organization and their thoughts. And I also want to add that not only is it a radical organization in terms of what it's looking to accomplish here in the U.S. for, for black people, in, specifically in our country in general, they're also incredibly anti-Semitic. You know, if you read their list of things they want to accomplish uh, and their list of demands and their, and their, their manifesto, essentially, 
again, it, it reads like radicalism on steroids for what you what you know. Ostensibly, they're there to protect black people, and a lot of their a lot of the things they want do in their mind do that. They don't ultimately, obviously, but of course, they had to include in that manifesto that has that is supposed to be right, ostensibly there to protect black people. They had to include the the canard, the blood libel that Israel's committing genocide. They felt so, it was so important them to attack the one Jewish state on planet earth that they had to include that spill ink to describe what's in their mind, their war mind, what's happening in Israel. So it, it does give you a little bit of an insight into who they are. Um, but I can't stress it enough that it, it is genius marketing to take a radical organization and to mainstream it the way they have. Hats off. I mean, what what you're describing on the right would be some sort of neo-Nazi organization that everyone countenances and everyone pays homage to. So you're saying that the success really just lends itself all to the name? That's a massive part. Yes. Look, obviously, you can't do you, you can't do the converse, right? You can't say white lives matter. And that yeah, become a mainstream yeah. thing, right? Because that's just the way our society is set up. And that's and, the and, way our society. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And, and in some ways, uh, I get that, right? Reasonably so. Um, but no. So, but it, the brilliance of it is the marketing of a minority group. Um, and look, and, and and I always look. I'm happy to say this. Um, the 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 truth is that when one says Black Lives Matter, it's an obnoxious comment because it makes. It presupposes that I don't think Black Lives Matter. I have to be told that, right? It, it, it's 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 offensive to me um, for for somebody to say that and want me to chant it because it, it makes they're trying to make it seem like I don't I didn't know that Black Lives Matter, didn't care Black Lives Matter, and I say this all the time when I'm asked about Black Lives Matter. Of course, Black Lives Matter, and and of course, people have gotten fired. Literally, fi- I mean, the the guy who is the voice of the Sacramento Kings, right? There's no right now. There's no industry more totalitarian in our country than sports, okay? I think, I, I think hands down, it's the most totalitarian industry, maybe even more totalitarian than, than, than teaching and uh, the university system right now, to be honest. Or it's a, they're pretty cool. They're, pretty, they're one and one A. But the, 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 the voice of the Sacramento Kings, the longtime announcer, uh, play-by-play announcer, the Sacramento Kings was fired, lost his jobs because he said, Yes, black lives matter and all lives matter. He lost his job. So uh, it, it, we're living in a, look, I never thought we, we, we would see this, um, you know, 1984 Orwellian, um, uh, you know, warping of language, which is what exactly we're, we're experiencing. And yeah, look, I, do black lives matter? Of course they do. Do I support the organization? In no way, shape or form. And if you want to cancel me for that, go ahead. Well, let me take that a step further. There's a lot of directions I want to take this with some of your experience with your videos and your in-person interviews with some of the people on the ground there. But have you, and I think you've talked to them about this with abolishing the police and everything, how indeed black lives don't matter to what they want to do because every day we see the gang violence, the bloods, the crips in the inner cities that are killing blacks. We saw an epidemic of black children over this past weekend, North Carolina, uh, Chicago, um, killed in cars. One was sitting in her apartment uh, and and a stray bullet just went right through the window and killed her. Uh, That was a a seven-year-old girl. It was a uh, 20-month-old black kid killed on the way back from a laundromat. 
have you ever talked to them about that and gotten their <laughs> opinion on it? I sure have. Um, yeah, I did a video. In fact, my last video was, do black lives really matter to the left? Uh, and the answer is no. Because, again, one of the main platforms of Black Lives Matter is to, you know, I, I don't like playing the games and defund, abolish the police. You know, I'll give you a great example. I'm sure we'll get to it. But in Occupy New York, technically they're saying that, that they want to defund the police. They don't. They want to abolish the police. It's actually in their list. of. If you actually go into the encampment, uh, there's actually a list of demands and, and really abol- defund the police from zero is what they say. They're not, they're not looking to, hey, take a take you know, 10% of the budget and move it over here. No, it's, it's, they have very radical agenda and goals. So when you say I want to abolish the police or even defund it, even if you assume some people want to just defund some of the, 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 the capital going to the police, let me tell you what happens. Crime is regressive. What I mean, it's, it's, it, what I mean by that is crime affects poor people far more than it affects rich people. Okay, Crime is more acute in areas of color than it is in rich suburban or even rich urban areas like in Manhattan or, you know, in in Westchester or Connecticut. So they're the ones who feel the brunt of the problems that arise when you defund or abolish the police. So I actually, A, I I did two sides of the same coin. I went to these white liberal hipsters and I asked them, should we abolish the police? Of course, they went on this rampage of, of course, they're evil people, they're terrible people. Uh, They're destroying the black community. And then I went to Harlem, same day, Malcolm X Boulevard, and I asked people there, should we defund or abolish the police? And they looked at me like I had two heads. This guy was wearing a Black Lives Matter shirt, said to me, that would be suicide, man. There are people who are raping and killing. Like, look, the, 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 the street, right? The man in the street who's a black person who's just trying to get by, just trying to do his thing, take care of his family, get to his job, he understands fundamentally what's at risk here for him, right? He under, he really does on every, all understand that this is insanity and the people who would really take the brunt of, of, of these regressive actions are the urban areas and, and, and the poor areas and the people and the areas of people of color. That's the sad part. But either these people on the radical left, you know, it's almost like you can't say radical, you can't use that qualifier anymore because the left has just become completely radical. They've become right? crazy. They have taken the right absurd- has become radical left. I mean, the Republicans. I, I can't. I can't find almost a single Republican that could categorically denounce this group. I mean, sometimes they'll say, say Antifa, um, but they'll never say that BLM is just. It's an anarchist organization, um, and that's my question to you. We're not going to see the leadership coming from whites. Um, because they're so scared. But my question is, I've seen you know black pastors quoted in the Chicago media, um, recognizing that it's become a war zone. Are you seeing any leadership in black communities that recognize that? Holy heck, we're headed back to the seventies and eighties in terms of the quality of life in the inner cities. Yeah, I'm sure they exist. The problem is, look, black leadership has been a problem for that community for for generations, at least for at least for a generation or two. I mean. Um, the black leadership has failed the black community year after year after year. And, and their, their alliance with the Democratic Party, in my view, has cost, I, I, don't, I don't know how many years it's cost the black community, but it's cost them at least a generation or two, or if not three generations. Um, and 
and we're we're seeing that now as well. No, I, I have seen most of the black leadership, uh, unfortunately, fall in line with the radical agenda of Black Lives Matter. And uh, either 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 they understand. Look, I don't know if they really truly understand what the organizations about, or they don't. But you hit it on the head. Um, and there's a reason why Antifa and Black Lives Matter have allied over the last few weeks, few months, is because they both have the the same end goal. And the same, they understand that you can't meet the demands they want without having anarchy. Anarchy is the key word here, because they fully understand that the only way to rebuild this country in their own warped image is to burn it all down. And there's no better way to burn it all down than anarchy. Anarchy is the key to this whole thing. They understand fundamentally that our system breaks down when a large amount of people begin to rise up. Police just can't handle it. We don't have we don't have the manpower to handle a lot. You know, if and, and obviously all, all black people are not gonna, are not going to do this or they follow this. But in their mind, they say, "Hey, if we can get ten to fifteen percent of the population to rise up, the system will collapse." And they're right about that. They are right about that. That's kind so of the, they're right deal. about that. And that's what I wanted to get your assessment of what is physically happening on the ground. You traveled to Seattle where they took over those those city blocks downtown. And what I'm trying to figure out is typically what distinguishes America or any um, sovereign first world country from a country where you don't have control like Afghanistan is the situation on the streets where – you don't have autonomous powers that could control areas. What I'm seeing now, someone just sent me, and this is from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, in Atlanta, much less in a, you know, in a blue state, they were setting up checkpoints, like literally like, you know, like Shiite militias or something, a checkpoints, and anyone who was white, they would block, and you have all these car lynchings taking place. Have you seen that <laughs> in some of your travels on the ground? So I have traveled extensively during these these tr- the, the troubled times we've had over the last few months. You know, I was in Seattle, I was in Minneapolis, I was in New York, all the major hot zones. And no, I have not seen quite that. They're not stopping white people from from coming in and checkpoints. I, it, it may or may not exist. I just can't vouch for it either way. Um, what I can tell you is that these people are extremely violent. One of the great media malpractices that we've seen over the last few weeks, and I'm, we're seeing it right now with Occupy City Hall here in New York, is that they are portraying these people as peace-loving and fun and, and lovely. And it just, I'm sorry, I hate to say this, it just couldn't be further from the truth. Whether it be in Seattle with, with CHOP, or whether it be in Minneapolis, or whether it be here in New York and Occupy City Hall, these are violent extremists that are happy to beat somebody down, whether it be me, like I tried to do yesterday, or somebody else. I mean, I was when I first got there, the first taste I had of what this Occupy City Hall is about, this older Hispanic couple was walking along the perimeter, and they said something about, because the signage, again, the signage is not, let's defund the police. The signage is abolish and kill the police, right? It's horrible, horrible posters and graffiti scrawled um, glorifying killing police officers. And this, this older Hispanic couple, the, the, the husband, you know, mentioned, like, this is crazy. What's going on? And this black thug came up to her and said, I'm going to break your bone. I'm going to beat you guys down. And he ran them off. And then this other white thug, so it's lovely that black and white come together, this, started chasing this couple. So, yeah, I'm going to do the same thing. And, you know, I was watching and I would have intervened if it got, if it got too bad. And, but thank God these guys they screwed off and it didn't. But, um, no, they, they are extraordinarily violent. 
uh, both in language and in deed. And when I, when they realized, you know, I was, had a hidden camera kind of filling me and they kind of figured out at some point what was going on and the mob turned on me and it was a mob. It was, you know, probably you know, 15, 20 people who then started approaching me, um, chanting, uh, threatening, and then ultimately it got physical where they grabbed the phone from my hand, they turned it off, they threw it on the ground, and then guys literally grabbed me, punching me, pushing me out of uh, uh, Occupy City Hall. So, yeah, no, this, 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 is, this has gotten, not getting, has gotten very dangerous. People are being killed in these zones. We saw that in, in shock. So it is incredibly alarming on, on what's going on on the ground. So that, that's what scares me from what you're saying, and I want to just double down on that. The, the you know people in both really Republicans as well, much less Democrats, seem to be intimating that look. Obviously, there's some violent elements, but most uh, most of these people are just you know they just want um, I don't know what it is they want you know as as if we're in the 1940s and somehow blacks are discriminated against widespread when whatever they can't prove that. But let's just say they have a legitimate grievance. That's the big line of you know Senator uh, Paul Brown last night on Tucker. Um, but what you're saying is that, no, it's kind of like I have my right fist in your face and my left hand is kind of empty type of thing. So you'll have a group of 40 people on a street. Yeah, maybe they're not all going to beat you, but some of them will. So that means that you as a citizen can no longer peacefully walk by without getting hurt. One of the things I tell people in terms of this freedom of speech business so in Cantwell v. Connecticut, the Supreme Court said, this is a 1940 case, quote, when clear and present danger of riot, disorder, interference with traffic upon the public streets or other immediate threat to public safety, peace or, or order appears, the power of the state to prevent or punish is obvious. So you're saying that this really does rise to that level in most of these gatherings. Absolutely. You know, one of my favorite lines that the, um, the, the mainstream media likes to say when describing this protest is, mostly peaceful. Okay, you know what mostly peaceful means? It means not peaceful, right? I mean, that's exactly what you're describing when they're mostly peaceful. Look, um, besides the fact that many of these protests, not all, but many of the protesters have participated um, in the rioting and the looting that has gone on. The other thing that's as important, if not more important, there are really two, the, 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 the people who participate in the violence and the protesters uh, I know it's forbidden to say this, but I don't care. They're two sides of the same coin. What I mean by that is, when I, and I probably spoke at this point to, uh, to 150, 200 protesters right, over the last uh, month or two. And I, among the many questions I asked them, I always asked them the same. One of the questions I asked repeatedly is, do you justify the violence? Okay? Because that gets at the heart of this thing. And out of all the people I've interviewed, I can think of two people, two out of all those people who gave me a flat no, cannot justify it. Everybody else found a justification for the violence. They said, hey, I'm not going to, I didn't participate in violence, but you can see why they did that. Or, yeah, no, no, I support what they did. Or they did it because, right? And that- This is what I can't understand because, like I, I said, people too, you know, it, you know, with this whole mostly peaceful thing, and even if that's true, what that means is when you're a motorist and you get surrounded by- a bunch of these people. And let's say there's there's a hundred of them there. You're right. Only 15 will beat you. So it's mostly peaceful in that sense. But it's nothing you could kind of negotiate your way out of really without getting hurt. 
So like, you know, like, let's say I had a right wing rally or something that I felt, wow, that resonates with me. And then I go and they start beating people up and burning things. Well, then I'm out of there. I mean, so if if you're if you're participating on the ground weeks into this, knowing what it's all about, that's pretty hard to s- separate from your personal support for that. Correct. It, look, it is. Um, no, you're, you, you hit it right on the head. It, it is. Like I said, the two sides of the same coin. The, the one can't exist without the other, right? The, the, viol- the, the people committing this violence are getting their, their air to breathe because they have this massive amount of people who are supporting them. Um, and that's why they have the room to do what they have, the, the room to do what they do. Um, like I said, when I, when I in the New Yorker, uh, I mean, New York Times, Washington Post, read the, read the articles about Occupy City Hall and you'd think you'd be going to a wonderland, right? Um, you, you'd think that you'd be entering this, this, this place of nirvana. And the reality is these are violent thugs. It is, by the way, uh, mostly white, right? All, all of these marches, all, even when it came to the violence, if you looked around who's committing the violence, look, these are mostly white leftists who are doing this. Obviously, black people are involved as well. But it is incredible to me that when you look around, just look at the demographics. When I went to CHOP, Mostly white, Occupy City Hall. Mostly white. Um, it, it's uh, it's really the whole the, the whole demographic thing to me, and, and, and the the racial divide to me is actually quite fascinating. Sure, and some of that might depend on geography. Like I would imagine some of the places like Atlanta or or you know some of the cities in the South might be more black. Um, and then it might make a difference between the looters and the organizers and whatever. But that's that's actually my question. How much of this is organized? How much is just spontaneous chaos? So that's the $54,000 question that we don't really have an answer to. Um, again, I've been on the ground. I've looked around. I have seen levels of organization. No question about it. But it's hard to say whether or not the entire thing is orchestrated, whether or not there's a mass, a grand plan behind it. My gut is there isn't a master plan. In other words, there, there isn't some puppet master saying, okay, this next city is going to be a hot spot and we're going to tap this city. But I think there is a level of, or once, the, once the, 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 it flares up, there is a level of organization down there directing people to go places. Um, and, and I don't know if it's a specific thing, hey, burn down a specific store. I don't think it is. But there's, there is for sure some level of organization that is pushing these people to go and create more anarchy and more violence. Because one of the things that did strike me just in a macro sense about organization here is that I never remember in the 2015 kind of Ferguson, Baltimore thing or uh, Rodney King, I never remember Europe getting involved. I never remember seeing, and these were pretty large protests that you saw in some of the European cities, they got pretty violent with the police in London, even Sweden. Um, so that's what le- leads me to believe there's some international component to this, um, some degree of organization. Like you said, they're not that they plan which target they're going to hit, but just in general to keep the general disquiet moving. Yeah, the whole European thing is interesting. Like I, I have always hung my hat on the fact that, hey, at least we're not as bad as Europe. Right? I've always kind of like, hey, we're... We're certainly more centered, more right-thinking, uh, figuratively so than, than Europe, <laughs> and that Europe is the, the the crazy, you know, the, the left has taken over those countries. Yeah, I'm not sure that's true. In fact, I know it's not true anymore. We've actually zoomed by 
uh, Europe, and, and we've now taken um, the lead on on leftism, kind of. Uh, in, we you know, have. Yeah, and it's um, it, it, it's pretty sad. It is pretty, and it's just, it was extraordinary to see those riots. Um, they obviously weren't as bad as here in the U.S., but to see that kind of um, the problems that they had there is distressing. One final thing, I want to get back to something you said initially that I feel is important. You mentioned the anti-Semitism with the BLM movement and the literature they put out. I want to merge this discussion with something I've actually seen from you recently before this whole thing blew up. And a lot of people forget because, you know, in politics, we have a memory of about a week long that long before we started talking about systemic racism, as if every white in this country is anti-black, actually, we had early this year an epidemic, and it really really started last year, of attacks primarily by blacks. Maybe there were a couple of Hispanics, according to some media reports I've seen, against Jews in New York. And I know you live in Manhattan. Um, you got the New York area where, where certainly in Brooklyn, you saw a tremendous degree of attacks. We saw what happened in Jersey City. And I've seen some videos out about some of the sentiments there. And at first, I didn't think much of it to me because, you know, I focus mainly on crime. So to me, I was like, yeah, that's the whole bail, abolishing bail and the jailbreak policies. And you have career criminals out there. A lot of them certainly were career criminals. But then I started reading up on the literature and I saw you put out a video at the time. Um, where you did a man on the street in Brooklyn about what people feel about Jews. And it was pretty shocking. Could you speak a little bit to some of the sentiment you're seeing that I hope is not that widespread in some of these inner cities about Jews and maybe whites in general? Yeah, that look, I do a lot of race videos, and they're mostly centered around the um, the, the racism of the white left, right? And that essentially the, the structure is you go and you speak to these, you know, white people who just have this bigotry of low, of low, low expectations for, for black people. And it's really, it's disgusting. And you go to black people, so this is what they think of you. And they go, that's insane, right? So, you know, I've, I've done a lot of those videos. I think they're quite illuminating. Uh, one of the, the videos that, was, that I did that was most distressful to me um, and saddened me to, to no end was that video you're referring to. There was a spate of attacks on Jews, some that ended up in death, um, and they emanated from the black community uh, in, in the New York area. And I wanted to find out if there was you know, support for this, if there was, you know, what, what was behind this, if they understood this, this phenomenon. And unfortunately, the majority of people I spoke to in the, one of the areas um, where a lot of the attacks emanated from uh, I'm not going to go as far as saying there was support for the attacks, but they justified it. But again, they justified it. The vast majority of people justified them by saying, look, this happened because, and they went through all the list of, of canards against Jews that are you know, untrue. They own that, the building, they own the, the buildings, rent and everything. They, yeah. cor- correct. Um, and it was a really difficult video, frankly, for me to shoot and for me to um, distribute or for me to discuss because it really uh, broke my heart. Now, again, I'm not saying that the majority of black people feel this way, but I will say this. The leadership certainly feels this way. Minister Farrakhan has, has had a resurgence over the last um, few months. Uh, his vile, his bile that, 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 that drips out of his mouth is now being accepted more and more widely, probably not even only from black people. You saw, you're seeing white celebrities 
okay, back uh, Farrakhan. And it is really disgusting. So, no, there's a, I mean, look, you, you look at a lot of the black leadership um, and you, there's a lot, you can trace back a lot of anti-Semitism from these people. Um, and it's really, really problematic. It really is problematic. And that's, under, and that's I was shocked. I was shocked when I saw, you know, the Jersey City attacker. It was one of these guys who was one of these like black terrorist type of organizations. And, you know, I didn't think anything of it. I mean, you know, we don't judge entire groups of people by race like the left does. So whatever. I mean, it was it was one guy. But then I saw some of these videos about the neighborhood in Jersey City. And there was one posted where they were talking openly and it was pretty scary. Like, wow, there's that sentiment there. And again, I would hope it's not a majority. But I think the reason why I'm revisiting this now is a lot of us are in a very tough position. We like to talk about law and order and punishing and deterring individual criminals, whatever color they are. It's a very simple system. Uh, the problem is when you get shoved down your throat as if somehow there's white on black ubiquitous racism when it's absolutely not true and then if anything you're really seeing it at least more prominently more measurably the other way around you know it's very hard to avoid that discussion and that that's that's what i'm struggling with now because i see where i live in baltimore maryland too um you know i don't think it's a majority uh but you know the only anti-semitic experiences i have had it put it this way it has not been with people who are white it just just hasn't been that way um and i just wonder how much of that is is it a local issue is it part of a general anti-white sentiment and in their kind of superstitious views they view jews as the ultimate whiteness in other words you know just just running everything the the old canard of jews run the banks and put them at a disadvantage and i'm i'm because i'm really starting to see a lot of this dogma go mainstream and it's just very concerning yeah, look, there's obviously there, there is, you know, and by the way, let's take a step back for a moment. I want to make one larger point about anti-Semitism and, and racism. And, and, you know, when people say this is a racist country, right, now, now kind of the narrative is that, you know, systemic racism. It's so funny. This narrative, these words that, you, that, that we're, you're hearing, literally six months ago was considered radical. It's all, these, these words have all become normative, right? Um, which, by the way, in and of itself is very, very shocking. But uh, does racism exist? Of course. Does that make this country racist? Of course not. Does anti-Semitism exist? Of course it does. There's been more, per capita, there's more anti-Semitic attacks than there are attacks against black people, homosexual people, and Arab people combined. Okay? Combined. Does that make this country an anti-Semitic country as, a, as an Orthodox Jew? No, it does not. This is in no way, shape, or form an anti-Semitic country. It has, look, anti-Semitism from the right has always existed. It has been around for a long time. Um, the, but the issue with anti-Semitism on the right is it's not, hasn't really grown, right? The same crazy And it's not Yahoo's, condoned or mollycoddled or promoted to the not, highest levels no of way, media, culture, and government. In no shape, or form, correct. But the same neo-Nazis kick it, they've existed. I don't know how many there are, a few thousand, they exist around. The real growth is coming from the left. And by the way... So, yes, uh, there, a, a, a not insignificant percentage of that is from the black population. But, man, do not downplay the anti-Semitism coming from the left white people, okay? That anti-Semitism exists and is growing and in some ways is even more dangerous. 
um, be, and, and that's, that's really kind of, you know, the, the, there, and obviously from the Arab population, um, but man, walk through the halls of academia, okay, and talk to professors about their beliefs about Jewish power and what Jews have been doing in this country. And I'm telling you, it'll, it'll, it's, it's like it's coming out of 1937 Germany, okay? Um, it is really, really dangerous and it's becoming mainstream. And we have, unfortunately, a lot to worry about going forward. Man, <laughs> that doesn't give me a lot of hope, but um, we're, we're over time. Final, final point. Everything you're saying paints a picture of a group, a movement that makes Bernie Sanders look like a traditionalist. And Republicans don't have much of a problem, at least in word, drawing a contrast from Bernie Sanders. Why is it that they seem to be incapable of drawing a contrast at a time when it's so easy to draw a contrast from these people? I don't think most American family, especially family people, even if they're somewhat brainwashed, subscribe to anarchy and violence. What is so hard to militate against that? Unfortunately, it's first stage thinking, which normally I associate with the left. But in this case, there are some people uh, who are Republicans who fall into this trap and they can't see past their nose. They can't see what's coming down the pipe. They can't look around the corner. And unfortunately, uh, that's kind of, and again, it's, it's, it's this great marketing. I, I, we get back, you know, we, we began with it, we'll end with it. It's a great marketing move. How do you, how do you say, I don't support Black Lives Matter? Then you have to end, well, I don't support the organization Black Lives Matter. Look, they just painted the same brush. Um, it was a brilliant marketing um, uh, maneuver, and it's paying dividends, not just with the left, um, but it's paying dividends, unfortunately, with some people on the right. It's a real problem. Well, there you have it, folks. Knowledge is power. You got to know what you're up against in order to formulate a plan to deal with it. And Ami's always on the ground, uh, literally putting his own life at risk uh, to try to get a sense of what they're all about. You can see his videos on his YouTube channel, Ami Horowitz, also at um, Ami Horowitz on Twitter. Uh, thanks so much for joining us and keep us abreast of what's going on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Well, that was Ami Horowitz, filmmaker, investigative journalist. I was always intrigued by him. Um, ever since years ago, I, I saw a film from him where he went on the ground in the Cedar Riverside's neighborhood of Minneapolis. That's the Somali area. And he just asked them what they thought about America, the Constitution. And uh, it's it's fascinating because he'll rip off that scab that others don't want to go to. Um, you know, we're always arguing over our beliefs, what we want, what we want. And he'll just uncover, well, what do they want? What is it they want? And I think this is a clarion call. I mean, we're not even talking about leftists. We are talking about violent Marxist anarchists. And it has nothing to do with race. Now, they're going to use race to declare a war on whites. But that's not the, even the end goal. The end goal is to just end America's system. So that will be one of the ways of doing it. Because they know the kryptonite of Americans is to not be called a racist. And they're scared of that. So that's the way to do it. And to remake America in their image. Now, normally you laugh at groups like this. In the past, I've always laughed at groups like this because I was more concerned about the real powerful political groups rather than just the, you know, the real extreme evident violence you see in the streets. This is different because it's that extreme violence that's dictating our policies. I mean, you look at Republicans in 
not only in Congress, but even in Republican states where they have super majorities in legislatures, it is dictating their agenda. I mean, this is something you can't. I mean, there's one thing if you have kind of a cute organization, kind of cheesy, kind of dumb stuff they're pushing, but it's not that harmful. And they call themselves Black Lives Matter. So, you you know, you, you don't want to insult these. They're like, hey, let me give them some money. Let me indulge a little bit. But I mean, you can't run or hide from this. If you're going to have a neo-fascist organization that calls themselves Black Lives Matter, you cannot countenance that. I mean, look, if I start an organization, Jewish Lives Matter or something, and push a right-wing agenda, and and anyone who opposes it is anti-Semitic and supports the Holocaust, I don't know. What, so is that going to take off? I don't think so. <laughs> Not at all. So anyway, we need to be aware of what is going on, and, 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 you, and we need to educate. I mean, if you have state or federal officials where you live that are Republicans— Reach out to them. Do you recognize who these people are and what you're giving into when you talk about police reform? And again, if you want to play the black canard, I'm not into this stuff. I'm into treating everyone equally. But if you actually want to appeal to blacks in particular, never forget that the biggest death, death toll of black children is coming from the homicides that emanate from the very abolish police, abolish incarceration policies that they want to exacerbate rather than take a step back and go back to the Reagan era. Never forget when there used to be a little bit of intellectual honesty in this country in the 80s and even 90s. The Congressional Black Caucus, we might have disagreed on fiscal policy, but they understood that crime and drugs was killing their neighborhoods. And they helped push that 1994 crime bill. Demand from your representatives on a state and federal level, we need a 2020 crime bill with a 2020 vision of what is actually causing violence and death and mayhem to all races, but most prominently the very race that they seek to pander to. More tomorrow on the virus and other stuff, other lies. Send me your notes at dharowitz at blazemedia.com. Tweet me at armconservative. I'm also on parlor at DEH0414. Sorry, my name was taken already, so that's the best I could do. It's my birthday and initials. Um, subscribe to our Facebook page. Miniman Speakeasy, Harwood Citizen Sanctuary. Till tomorrow, stay armed, stay empowered, and stay knowledgeable. Stay knowledgeable.